Fed said they're going to raise rates. And what that means is that theoretically, they're going to, they're trying to like slow the economy a bit because the economy has been going a little crazy. Inflation's high. But really what they're trying to do is they're trying to control the unemployment number rather than the inflation number. And what that means for you as a business is it could get a little rocky. But the point I'm trying to make is right now, or if it gets a little rockier, you should be reevaluating who you sell to. Not like the exact person, but like the different segments, right? What's up, everyone? Welcome, welcome, welcome back to another episode of Organized Chaos Live. And today's conversation is going to be all about pricing, particularly how you price your product during this kind of recessionary environment that we're in. And we'll talk about whether or not we're actually in a recession. We're going to have a specific emphasis on SaaS products, software as a service, because our guest specializes in that. But if you're not in SaaS, there will be tons of applications, gems, takeaways that you can apply to your business. So to kick things off, if you're watching live in the comments, I would love to know, has your business or the company that you work for made any changes to your pricing because of what's happening in the macro market? If so, I want to know what's the change that you've made? What's been the impact so far? Because we'll work that into our conversation. All right. Joining me today, Patrick Campbell. Patrick is a CEO of ProfitWell, recently acquired by Paddle, and we'll talk about that too. It's a software for helping subscription companies with their monetization and retention strategies, and we've been using it for years and years and years. Uh, in fact, I have ProfitWell t-shirts that I still wear all the time. Patrick, when when you come in, I, I feel like uh, they're almost a, a t-shirt of my own company because I just look at my dashboards and metrics. It feels like an internal tool, so that's how much I love ProfitWell. Prior to ProfitWell, Patrick led strategic initiatives for Boston-based Jemvara, and he was an economist at Google and with the U.S. intelligence community. So super smart guy. Patrick, so glad to have you here. What's up, man? It's good to see you. It's been a while, and I, I love, love the production. This is this is a... You've come a long way, Chris. You've come a long way. It's exciting. Stepping it up. Stepping it up. You were on, I think, probably like the first 10 or 20 episodes that we ever did. It was a different podcast name, but if anyone wants to go back, you can see a super early interview with me go. and Patrick. Uh, I think I've got like a, a wrinkled uh, logo like a bed sheet behind me, maybe. You know, those what? you know what? That's how it is. You got to start, you got to start small. You got to jam and then uh, eventually you get uh, some stream yard and you get some good, some good live stuff going. So we, excited we fancy, here, we fancy now you're That's fancier good, than yeah, me yeah. because your, your recent acquisition and where are you calling in from? You told me before we, we jumped yep. on here. Uh, I'm in San Juan, Puerto Rico. So moved here um, like slightly before the acquisition and been enjoying uh, the beaches, all that kind of stuff. I was in Utah and then I was in Boston for, for about a decade. So uh, I'm, I'm enjoying the beach life a little bit, uh, although I've never, never really been in the beach life before. So it's a little different. Well, in Arizona, we say we have lots of beach, but no water, like just all yeah. We've got this, this <laughs> yeah. part of the beach. Um, all right. So let's get into the, the, the topic at hand here. Um, I'm sure you get asked about this a lot. I saw a blog post that you read. Uh, that you wrote uh, about a uh, recession. Are we in a recession? Are we headed into a recession? What's your take on this? Yeah, so my my take is that the answer doesn't really matter um, because I, at a macro level, if we're like sitting around drinking coffee or and arguing about what's going to happen in the world and not no ability to affect it, yeah, I think technically we're in a recession. It's a really weak one right now. But I think that um, the reason I said it doesn't really matter is because... Um, I think people think we're in a recession and what one of the hallmarks is kind of like traffic. If everyone just agreed to not think like they were in a recession, like we wouldn't make it worse. Right. But everyone's kind of been like cutting. Um, we've seen this in the data. People have been cutting um, very similar to right when COVID started. Um, so extremely similar like um, relationship in terms of the data where mm. um, you're seeing these like three waves that are happening. Um, so this is the bad news. The bad news is, is the first wave started around February, March. And this is when people start looking at their expenses, their balance sheets and just start, you know, do we need this? Do we need this? Do we need to let people go, et cetera? Um, those are the people who are typically very experienced who did that first. And then the second wave was all the people who didn't do it going, ooh, uh, yeah, we probably should do that now. And that was, you know, a few months later. 
Um, and then the third wave are finally the people who either didn't cut as deep as they should have earlier um, or people who are finally getting around to, to making some cuts. Um, the good news is that historically, and we have data, um, for those that don't know our business, we have access to a large bevy of financial data. And that's where I'm able that it's all B2B data. So we can see what consumers are doing um, and obviously what businesses are doing. The good news is when we looked at the past like four or five recessions, we basically found um, that historically uh, the three cuts is always what happens. So what I'm trying to say is, is like we're at the end of the three cuts. It doesn't mean we're at the end of a recession. It doesn't mean that like the global economy will not have problems. Um, and it doesn't mean that this won't change, but it does mean that if your business quote unquote survived um, up until probably I'd argue the end of September, just to be safe, um, your existing customers will will be staying with you because they've kind of chosen to keep you when they're thinking of cutting. Um, if you're a consumer company, meaning you sell to directly to like um, you know consumers, it's going to be a little bit sketchy. It just kind of depends on the government. Like you know, the student loan thing will bevy up some some folks. The canceled student loans. Um, there will be some different changes that happen as we get into an election season. There might be some stimulus or something that won't necessarily be direct, but it'll affect things. But long story short, I think that um, we're not at the end or anything, but we're, we're now in a very stable place. Um, and I think I can get into like what I think people should do, but, but hopefully that answers your questions about it doesn't really matter. We're in it. And, um, you know, we're kind of on an upswing or at least a stable place, which I think is good. Yeah, thank you for saying that because when I see all the headlines, it's like, who cares about the technicality? Like, are people pulling back yeah. their spending? Yeah, like, like, like what the definition of recession is. Like, yeah, technically we are on the definition, but as you know, like, and on one hand, like, yes, it's kind of stupid to say, well, technically that's not the definition as the administration has. But on the other hand, they're also partially right that it's more than just like this number definition and. I think uh, I, I think things aren't great, but they're not you know as bad as like news cycles will will you know let a belief, and then the numbers will will tell the story in the next couple of quarters. So when you talk about these three waves, did you see explicitly in the data like these spikes in churn or something, or where people yep. were just canceling and then it came back down, and then and then another spike and then another? Yep. So you basically see the less spikes, um, they are spikes if you look at the data you're describing, but like it's more just the growth will kind of stall because the other thing to kind of keep in mind for a lot of businesses is that, um, and this is something that I think it's really important for everyone to do is if you're selling to other businesses, um, there are different verticals or segments or archetypes, depending on who you sell to, that are affected differently, right? So beginning of the, the COVID situation, right, which is only a couple of years old, um, mm -hmm. all of a sudden, if you're selling to a company or a type of company that has anything to do with in-person, those were churning, you can't sell, you can't get new customers in those markets, right? Hotel chains, hotel software, et cetera, right? The, but if you were selling to a company that built, in this case, like, uh, remote work software or, um, you know, telehealth, or you were, you know, a consumer brand selling telehealth or a consumer brand selling, you know, DC goods, e-commerce goods that, you know, people oh, right, normally yeah. get at the store, you were going crazy, right? You were growing like crazy, right? And so I think that the, the first thing I always recommend to people when you're, you're hitting like a downturn, and this might happen again, right? Like the Fed said they're going to raise rates. And to kind of explain this simply, what that means is that, theoretically they're going they're trying to like slow the economy a bit because the economy has been going a little crazy inflation's high but really what they're trying to do is they're trying to control the unemployment number rather than the inflation number and what that means for you as a business is it could get a little rocky but the point i'm trying to make is right now or if it gets a little rockier you should be reevaluating who you sell to not like the exact person but like the different segments right so if you're selling a little bit more to i don't know like um um you know uh let's just say the COVID example is so clean. But right now, like for example, I would go look at entertainment companies because in recessions, entertainment companies, especially like movie theaters, those types of like entertainment class, they typically do really well because it's rather cheap entertainment. If you're mm -hmm. selling to maybe like people who serve those going on vacations, um, they're probably going to get hit because the gas prices and all that kind of stuff, it's a little bit harder to go on vacation, right? So that's like an example of like, just reevaluate your personas and just literally go down the line and be like, is it, do we feel like these people are going to change or not? Most aren't going to change, but then there's going to be some where you're like, we should go after this market because we think it's going to accelerate um, or we should stop going after this market because it's going to go flat.
I thought you were going to say that the movie theaters were going to get hit again. And I was like, oh, those poor, those movie there's some, theaters. Well, there's some other things going on there just right. with like, you know, the the streaming stuff being so, so good. But yeah, yeah. The, the concept of cheap entertainment, like what is a replacement for going to Orlando, right? It's, you know, doing some stuff around, you know, the local city. So like campsites will probably do really well um, as they do typically in recessions and things hmm. like that. Did you see that uh, Disney Plus subscriptions past Netflix or their revenue past Netflix? I didn't see that actually, but I, I believe it. Yeah, it's um, we did a big study on this um, for some content. And historically, the, the thing that people don't realize is that nostalgia factor is so strong in content like media. Hmm. So when you have Marvel, when you have Star Wars, when you have, you know, all the kids movies going up against like good content on Netflix, like great content, but kind of like the equivalent of watching like a TNT movie. Like it's definitely better than a TNT movie, but it's like, that's what that is compared to Star Wars and Marvel. Like, yeah, it's kind of hard to compete with that. And that's why when everyone was like crapping on Disney plus, I was like, just wait, just wait. They're not <laughs> idiots. They're not dumb. They've, yeah. they've been storytellers for a century. They know what they're doing. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, that's, that's why we're so rooted in nineties R and B and pop culture. <laughs> it's nostalgia yeah. is valuable. Yeah, totally, man. Um, all right, so so the COVID examples were easy. Are there any verticals you're seeing that are particularly struggling right now? Um, I think most verticals that serve like uh, they're they're called basically the underbanked. Um, so so like think of it this way: like any vertical that serves wealthy individuals, you're kind of in protected markets, right? That's why when they talk about the real estate market, like the highest part of the real estate market, maybe the prices come down, but the volume doesn't necessarily go down, right? Whereas the volume of like, you know, common or low end residential units, those will tank, right? Um, and so it's it's kind of like, um, like there's some consumer companies um, that were selling more like nice to have like D to C um, subscription e-commerce products um, that like, you know, maybe I go to the corner store to get my razor or my uh, deodorant or my vitamins because getting them through this e-commerce site is actually like double the price. Like I like those better, but you know, it's not worth the price. Right. And then software companies that are kind of serving consumers are getting hit mm -hmm. um, like, or that are serving um, other businesses that serve direct consumers are getting hit. Like B2B is, is doing relatively well. Like B2B is like undefeated uh, typically in terms of these types of things. Like in COVID, Yes, there were the obvious winners and losers, and same thing with right now with this little blip. But it's like eighty percent of the group is just keep going, <laughs> you know, keep going. Yeah. And so I think that's the big thing to keep in mind is like, yeah, if if you're in an obvious hit, like in either direction, like it's just that sucks, right? But like yeah. most of us, there's just no excuse for continuing to execute. So so then when you're looking at the data uh, for SaaS companies, are there any? metrics that just feel like they're bottoming out or like that, that they just, they keep tanking and you're like, Oh, this doesn't look good. You know, like is, is LTV going down across the board is, is our conversions going down or trials? Like, is yeah. there anything that you're seeing macro? Um, so it's hard. It's hard to, it, it, it's kind of hard because it's, it's not like a, it's not always a perfect, you know, spike when we're looking at like aggregate data, right? Um, I will say that like some of the bloodletting or the churn that was happening has paused. Now that doesn't mean that all of a sudden we're going back to no one churning, right? It just means like it's getting better, right? Uh, and so, and I think that um, very similar to COVID, like COVID in the B2B market, there were three weeks where things stalled didn't go down, just stalled with B2B and then B2B just went right back at it, right? Yeah. Whereas like e-commerce, basically um, you had a three week stall because everyone was like, am I gonna have a job or not? And then it just exploded. And then because they suck at retention, even <laughs> you know, right after that Black Friday, Cyber Monday of 2020, it just kind of like started leveling off, right? Because there was so much more churn. So I think that like, there's no more spiking, but it's not like, great, we're back to normal. Like we're not quite there. It's kind of like we're stable um, kind of across the board. Um, certain verticals, like we were talking about, we're starting to see some spiking in the right directions and wrong directions, but it's just a little too early to tell. Okay. This is why economists like 
they're ter- they're really great at predictions only in the past though. So they're really, really great at being like, Oh, a quarter from now, I can tell you what happened today. But, um, we try to like, and, and it's, you know, partially because these things don't move as quickly on a daily basis. It's more of like, you have to see three weeks and you're like, Oh, that's what was happening. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but we try to be like, a month rather than like two quarters, uh, you know, in terms of predictability and things like that. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So last time we talked, we talked a lot about pricing. I mean, that's a big part of, of your, your, uh, expertise. And I'm curious, is there any advice that you would be giving differently given this market about how Mm. SaaS businesses should be pricing what they do? Yeah. So great question. I think that there's a couple of things. I think one, you need to realize that again, as I was saying before, if you have your customers now, especially in B2B, those customers are with you. And historically, um, these kind of little blips or downturns are are come in a couple of flavors. One flavor is, um, and this is like really early 2000s flavor. We haven't really seen this in a long time, a little bit and even in 2008, but new customers will go zero, meaning like you just will stop getting as many new customers. Hmm. And then your existing customers, because they've chosen you, are more than willing to pay more and they're more than willing to like check a look at your pricing, right? Or take a look at new offerings that you offer. Um, And so I think that one big thing to kind of keep in mind is I I don't think we're quite there. I think if you reevaluate your segments, what you'll notice is, is people will cut, maybe some people churned, and then all of a sudden, again, those people who are with you chose you, and then your new revenue will will kind of continue at the clip um, that it was going. And so I think that it's one of those things where the thing I'm trying to say is, is because of that phenomenon, you should be raising prices on your existing customers um, not because they're with you and they chose loyalty, but because you probably haven't changed your prices in years because most people don't. Um, you should be changing and you know basically raising your price on your existing product at least once a year, um, assuming that you're making progress on it. Um, and assuming your NPS or whatever you measure is over 20, and NPS over 20 is pretty weak actually, um, then you should be raising your price. Um, and I think that's a really big thing that's hard for people to understand because they're scared right now, right? But it's like, when the market was good, you also were scared, right? So you're just constantly scared um, to change your pricing. And I get it because it sits at the intersection of important and uncomfortable. And whenever we have things at the intersection of important and uncomfortable, like that's what happens. But I think ultimately, like the big thing you got to think about is, you know, it's a good time to do it. You have to do it in the right way, which we're happy to get into. Um, the second thing is, finding different avenues to upgrade folks. Uh, so add-ons, additional products, um, localization, like meaning like just internationalizing your price, uh, meaning you have different prices in different regions, um, even if 20%, only 20% of your customer base is in a different region. It's a really good thing to start implementing because um, you'll start getting higher volume in certain places where you price too high, you'll start getting more revenue in certain places where you're priced too low. Um, and then I think that I would say we can go deeper on any of these. If you get really scared or like, you're like, I'm unique, I'm a beautiful snowflake, which everyone typically (laughs) thinks, um, which is fine. Um, The biggest hack that you should be doing is how do I get more community and more like free? So one of the big things we saw during COVID is that some folks would try freemium offerings or community-based offerings um, because everyone's looking for information or everyone's get a little skittish, especially B2B customers um, during kind of recessions or things like this. And so if you can find a way to bring as many of those people into you now um, and kind of like take advantage of that feeling, even though it's a negative feeling, whoever holds on to the most customers at the end of this ends up winning, right? And so one of the most successful things that we saw was um, one company, they did these competitive offerings because B2B companies are looking to cut and they went to people who were with like giant, you know, offerings that just were sucky anyways, but they didn't have an excuse to leave. And they said, we will basically buy out your existing contract if you come to our offering, which really just meant we'll give it to you for free until your contract with that company is up and then you'll start paying us, right? It was a really bold move. They were well capitalized um, to do it, but they came out of COVID in this case, just roaring because they all of a sudden had these customers who started paying them that they had acquired uh, when everyone was really scared. So those are some things to kind of think about. 
So that particular strategy, I want to dig into a lot of these things, but that particular example, um, I, you know, we, I've talked about that with mentors and, and toyed with the idea. And you see big companies, big brands doing it like Verizon will buy out AT&T contracts or whatever, you know, and, yeah. and when, when they're in a marketplace like that, where there's a couple very obvious competitors, it makes sense. You want to just target them directly. When you're in a growing market or you've got some kind of, um, you know, startup competitors, do you want to cast a, a wide net and say, and, and kind of um, point out all these other brands? Or do you think that's a, what do you think about that strategy? You don't have to, you don't have to point out the brands, right? Like just imagine uh, it's, I mean, you can just say like, we'll buy out your contract. You don't have to say AT&T. It's like, oh, you have an existing you know, one of the reasons you might not be converting is because you have an existing contract or an annual plan with with um, your current help desk provider. Great, doesn't matter who it is, we'll buy it out, right? I think it's like the thing. The thing about pricing and the thing about competition and some of these other concepts. And I'm going to rant for a second here. Is like a lot of these things. It's like we should never infantilize our customers, right? And I think what we think sometimes is like, well, what if what if we let them know about a competitor? And it's like, they know that they they know there's other solutions. They know like they maybe found you and they love your product, but they they know that like maybe they don't know the names of them, but they're like, Chris can't be the only person doing this, right? Maybe he's the best person doing this, but he can't be the only person on earth doing this thing. Same thing with pricing, right? Oh, I'm scared to like talk to them about pricing because what if what if they're like what if they're scared away? It's like people know things cost money right? Like they know things cost money. And yes, they're not doing like a magic calculus of like, well, you know, if it's this much value, it's this price, right? But it's like one of those things where I, I think that um, we're just kind of scared to 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 kind of, you know, push things forward. Like one of our early pricing pages, we put our competitor logos on our pricing pages. Like we were just like, you're going to do the research. So like, we've done it for you. Like, go go check out our competitors. Like, we know you'll be back, right? And I think that that's that's a sign it's a nice little flex because you have to make sure your product can back it up but also it's like hey like we you know we know these people exist here's who they are awesome you know what i mean like just check it out um so yeah little little rant not exactly what you were saying don't, but i think it's don't think infantilize it's your customers is that what you said or don't yeah, don't infantilize like them. babies i feel like i'm gonna forget how to say infantilize by next week. yeah don't don't <laughs> treat them like babies like treat, treat them like adults <laughs> like they are they're not always gonna act like adults but treat your customers like adults and yeah i don't know totally. it's just kind of funny with some of this stuff all right so raising prices like you said it's kind of a taboo thing like you you're afraid to do it in good times or in bad times but i think particularly now the more you can get the right customers and hold on to the right customers the stronger you'll come out of this and if those right customers are willing to pay more because they really value your solution then it makes sense to try to push price a little so if you go down that path do you have a recommendation on how much to increase pricing like if you're just dipping your toe in the water where do you start yeah. So what you really should be doing is you like when you're doing this right, you would go out and you would talk to some customers and you do it in a, a proper manner, which I'm happy to get into you, or you'd send and collect some data and you would not only talk to your current customers who are obviously anchored at your existing price, but you would go talk to people who are in your target customer base who have never heard of you. Right. And so you'd kind of go, go to that crowd and then kind of compare and contrast. Right. And if, and if you're, let's say, less than 10 million in revenue. Like we're not thinking about, am I a $10 product versus an $11 product? Like that's not what we're worried about. We're worried about like, are we a $10 product? Are we a $15 product? Really, are we a $10 or a $50 product, right? Mm -hmm. um, or a $100 product or so on and so forth, right? And I think people get too caught up in like, it needs to be this like really precise measure. And it's like, no, you're going to use some judgment <laughs> because you're going to get a bunch of information and you're going to earn your paycheck, which is like to take all that information in and then make a decision, right? And so when it comes to pricing, what, what, what you'll end up doing is, um, uh, I'll just get into some of the questions that I'll collect data on, but like you'll go collect data on, you know, human beings, we think about price as, as a spectrum, like psychologists and economists have studied this for a really long time. Um, we know that this water bottle is worth less than this camera. Um, because we've purchased these things in the past, we were anchored, but we also like naturally understand like one provides a different or higher level of value because water is presumably commoditized mm -hmm. um, and this camera's not, right? But all of a sudden, you know, you put me in the desert for three days, like my value calculus changes, right? So there's like context, you know, that ends up happening. And 
So it's a lot easier for us to answer these ranged questions, like which one's worth more, rather than something like how much is this worth, right? So mm. there was a couple of folks who came up with some interesting questions, um, like at what point is this way too expensive? You would never consider purchasing it, right? If I'm on a sales call and someone's asking me about price, I'd be like, hey, at what point is it so expensive that you wouldn't return my next call, right? And then questions like, at what point is this such a good deal um, you'll sign today, right? Like these range type of questions. So I'll go do a I little bit of research. At a car dealership. <laughs> <They're> like, <laughs> there we'll, you go. I mean, we'll price you have right? to buy it today. All right, sorry, I interrupted. Yeah, no, but it's important. But like that, and it's because they're, the, the reason they're doing that, it's more obviously more of a sales tactic in that particular sense. But you're able to, like, that's, a, that's an easier question because you can think of that rather than, what would you pay for this, right? It's, it's just harder. It's not an easy, but it's an easier question. Yeah. So I'd go collect some data from, you know, at least 10 qualitative people and then maybe send a survey to like get like 100, 150 responses and then kind of compare and contrast the numbers. And then what, what you normally find, um, and there's some other questions you should ask, so we're not doing an exhaustive, you know, research method class here. But what you normally find, or what, I, what I typically find is that 90% of the companies that do this research, they discover they're underpriced with their existing customer base even. So they find out their existing customer base is willing to pay more, not always that much more because again, they're anchored, but then the people who have never heard of them and haven't used the product, but in their target customer base are willing to pay a lot more typically because they never did this research. They got into a room and they went, hmm, what should the price be? I don't know, like so-and-so is charging this much. We should just charge that much. Okay. And then they didn't revisit it for another three to five years, right? Like it takes three to five years like for another price, price increase typically to happen. And if a PE firm buys you tomorrow, first thing you're going to do, raise price every time. Because the founder is too much of a wuss to do it. And the PE firm's like, I don't care. Like, they'll just go do it, right? <laughs> now, presumably we found a number. So we have a number. Um, the next step is, okay, let's say it's, if it's over 100% of where we are now, so it's you're at 50 and it's $100, that's probably the limit of raising a price. Um, and even then that's a little high. Normally you don't want to do more than like a 50% price increase at once, uh, because it, it's, it's just emotionally, it's just too much for customers, even if they're willing to pay it. So what I would do in that situation is I would raise my price on my existing customer base over time. So maybe over three years or two years or whatever, how many years, depending on what it is. And then for new customers, I would, I would basically change the price immediately. Now, the thing that people get wrong is normally the communication strategy. If someone's receiving a 50% increase, they probably need a different conversation or a different, more personalized conversation. So you got to use your judgment. Going from $1 to $2 is very different than going from $50 to $500, right? Um, so, but everyone should receive communication in the context of them. So what I mean by that is here's, here's a little email um, for everybody, right? So I'm going to start an email out where I'm going to say something along the lines of, over the past year, we have gotten you this many contacts. You've inserted this many trainings inside Trainial. We've recovered this much revenue using ProfitWell. We added this feature and you use this feature every day. So I'm pulling in actual data about that specific customer, right? Yeah. And then I'm going to say, for us to continue to invest in making ProfitWell great for Trainial, great for you, great for your company, we need to raise our prices, right? So I'm saying I'm raising my prices because I'm going to increase the value for them. I want to reinvest for them. It's always a shock. Doesn't matter how much they love you. Doesn't matter how much value you did. So the next section is going to be, but because you've been so loyal, because you've been with us 3.5 years or 3.2 years or whatever it is, we are going to raise prices on everyone else, on everyone new, all those disloyal people. You're not going to say this dramatically, but we're going to raise prices on all new customers. But for you, because you've been with us for so long, you're going to keep your existing price for the next six months. And then afterwards, um, which is a X dollar value. And then afterwards, we'll increase your price. If you have any questions or um, if you have any questions, let me know. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and then the PS is super, super crucial. The PS is if this materially impacts your business or you, let me know and we'll figure something out. And the reason you do that PS is for two types of people. One, for people who are actually impacted. It's a great brand opportunity. Oh my gosh, I, sorry, I'm going through these hardships, blah, blah, blah. And you can go, and most people will try to negotiate with you. Most people will try to meet you in the middle and you can just go, 
hey, don't worry about it. You figure your stuff out. We'll reach out next year. Don't even worry about it, right? It's a great brand opportunity. The other type of person is for us, for guys like you and me. We see expenses. We don't want anything to go up, even if it's valuable. But when you've laid out the value, you're giving me this little legacy discount, as it's called. And then all of a sudden, you're like, let me know and we'll work something out. I'm like, ah, I don't want to make it hard on so-and-so. I get it. Okay, fine. Right. Or I don't believe you and I don't believe the value provided. I'm going to respond and be like, yeah, your app's buggy and everything sucks. And then you have an opportunity to have a conversation with me. But that copy or that message, notice it's about them. It's not about us. It's not about us at all. It's all about them. It's about the value. Too many price increase emails I see. It's all like our costs went up, inflation, blah, blah, blah. And it's like your customers do not give two hoots about your content or your mm -hmm. costs. They care about their costs, right? And so it's got to be about them. So yeah, that, that's my little That was gold. Place. I mean, that the email that you just laid out there, anybody that's listening to this needs to just take notes or replay that email, write down the script because basically you just laid it out. That was a template for, for any time you're raising prices. Um, you mentioned that, you know, if you haven't done this before, maybe you want to do this on like an annual kind of cadence. Is, is yep. there ever a time when you should be raising prices more frequently, like, you know, quarterly or just watching EMP, yeah. uh, NPS? You're, you should be changing something about your price or your pricing, your monetization every quarter, but not necessarily the price. So what I mean by that is you have three ways to grow your business. Acquisition, acquiring new customers, monetizing them better, meaning your revenue per customer, and then mm -hmm. retaining your customers. Within a subscription business, that means actually retaining them. Within other businesses, it's like repeat purchase rates, right? And the funny part is, is you have a lot of teams and a lot of horsepower dedicated to acquiring customers, right? Yeah. You have maybe a little bit of resources based on your retention. Like you're doing stuff every quarter, we're gonna build this new feature, come out with this new thing, whatever it is. You probably have very, very little focused on your revenue per customer, which is your pricing, your monetization, right? But there's a lot of levers, right? So we do price localization one quarter. We experiment with our discounting strategy the next quarter. We change and raise our price the quarter after that. We come out with this new add-on the quarter after that. Like there's a lot of different things that you can do. So you should be changing something about your price or your monetization every quarter, but really only raising the actual number once per year. Now you might have effective increases, like, hey, we're gonna change how much we give away in each package, or we're gonna move this feature from one tier to another. But I think that like a straight up price increase once a year, because almost probably 99% of people listening are not like, we're six months before an IPO, right? Like, and if you're like flying, you could probably get away, like HubSpot prior to the IPO, like was raising their price like every six months. It's just, it's just a lot to handle and you have to have um, a lot of like kind of production on top of it to make sure that things, um, you know, don't mess up. Now, one thing they did find though, and this is something you should add to your price increase, they would go to the existing, um, existing customers, which depending on how you're going to communicate this might not be a good idea if you're going to use the email I just described. And they would say, hey, a price increase is coming. And if you are on our annual plan, we will keep your existing price for that next year, right? So they changed it up a little bit. And then they went to their pipeline and they said, hey, the price increase is coming. If you sign up by X date, end of the quarter or whatever, you will keep the existing price for the next year, right? Mm -hmm. So that basically cleared the decks and, and helped their retention, right? And so you can kind of combine some of those concepts with, um, with what I was just talking about. Such smart strategies. Um, in the in the chat, Isaiah mentioned that retention is going to be a, a key component. I think having a lower price at entry, lots of volume could be big in the next few quarters. So you mentioned that just getting more people is, you know, freemium or ending up with the most users is a good strategy. Do you think that a lower price is a similar strategy to just get more people in? No, there's, there's, well, so again, Isaiah, you're not here to defend or, or explain your question further. So I'm, I'm reading into your question and you're going to go, that's not what I meant, which is totally <laughs> valid and fine. Right. Um, I would say there, there's two things here. One, um, the thing that you just said about, okay, we're looking at our customer base. We're realizing they're hurting a lot, right. Or they're, they're not, they're not going to be the ones who are doing okay. So we need to retain them as much as possible. Well, that retention plus adding a bunch of freemium, adding a bunch of community, getting a bunch of logos is really important. The thing I quibbled with there is that 
a lower price does not necessarily mean more volume. And I know like you're like, but I took an econ class and supply and demand curves, right? The thing is, is that software, it, it doesn't act like a commodity good. Um, and what I mean by that is there are times, and just to give you an example, one of the questions we also like to ask with pricing research is at what point is it too cheap that you question the quality of it, right? Mm -hmm. Because what ends up happening with software is like, or I would say a lot of products, there's a lot of like, hey, this particular, you know, um, you know, product is claiming X, but they're only $50, right? That doesn't make any sense. And we, we have plenty of examples where people would like 10X their price, 50 to 500, and their revenue obviously goes up, but their conversion rate goes up, which is insane, mm -hmm. right? And so he, Isaiah, I think it was, is not wrong, right? But it's not a blunt instrument. It's not a, a sledgehammer. What it means is, is like, in that case, I wouldn't lower my price. I might have salvage offers on my cancellation flows, um, where basically, like, cool, I'm, you know, someone's trying to cancel. Maybe I have a maintenance plan, or maybe I have like a, hey, we'll give you the next six months at ten dollars off. You just have to determine based on your own situation. But just because I lower my price does not mean my conversions necessarily going to go up. Um, there are some consumer products that that will happen, but even like. I don't know, there's plenty of consumer products I've seen the inside of where they're like, we're going to go from $10 to $9 and it did nothing. We're going to go $10 to $5, did nothing to conversion rate. Um, so you just have to be conscious of that sensitivity of the, your user base. If it's a commodity, yeah, you'll definitely see increased uh, increased uh, um, volume, but we're not selling commodities typically. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great point because you're, you're right. Supply and demand, it, it almost feels counterintuitive. Like if I reduce the price, I should get a wave of new customers. And I don't think it works that way. Yeah. We've seen the same thing. I think it's, uh, so backgrounds in econometrics and math. And I think the thing that it's kind of like, uh, remember in like elementary school, they told us Christopher Columbus discovered America, right? And then in high school, it's like, well, actually, it's a little more complicated, Native Americans, Vikings, et cetera. And then in college, they're like, yeah, it's, it's actually a little more complicated. Not only is that all true, but also like Columbus is kind of an asshole, right? Like they kind of like goes like, it's like different levels based on education, right? Like same thing with supply and demand curves. Like supply and demand curves are not straight lines. Like they curve, they backward bend, they go all around, right? And, you know, if you, it, it's at the end of the day, supply and demand is true. It's just it's not like a one-to-one -one relationship, right? It might flatten out for a little bit and then it might go down and it might go back up again, right? And so I think that's the thing that the mental model is totally right. It's just the sensitivity of um, willingness to pay is normally not as much as we think based on the mental yeah. model. So yeah. this allows me to use my overpriced degree. So excuse my <laughs> indulgence there. Yeah, I, I love it. I love it. All right. So outside of free, you mentioned community, you mentioned experience. These are other things uh, Events, different yeah. than price, but what, what practical kind of tips would you offer for really uh, leaning into those areas? Uh, yeah, so there's, there's a lot of opportunity. It's, it's a little hard because COVID, everyone was scared. So it was kind of, I feel bad saying it was like easy, but it was kind of easy to be like, like we did this whole, like we got a bunch of index data. We took all the profitable users and we started an index, kind of like a stock index to track every single day. How's it going, you know, in terms of the ups and downs, right? Um, and then on top of that, we ended up, um, we like started a... <laughs> It's in hindsight, it's a little cringe, but at the time, like it was really well appreciated. We started this like stimulus partnership thing where basically we got a bunch of software companies together to offer like deals, like basically like, hey, if anyone signs up, they can get $10 off here a month. They can get this for free. They can do whatever, right? Just to kind of help our community. Obviously, like we wanted more leads and we wanted customers still, but it was also like we wanted to help our community, right? So there's like stuff like that. I know HubSpot during COVID, like they really upped the number of events that they did, like webinars, like events, because people were looking for that connection, right? Normally in like stimulus, people are looking for content like this. Hey, uh, I heard there's a recession. I'm hearing about it. I have uncertainty. I'm not necessarily scared, but what should I do? What should I not do, right? So this type of content is really, really useful typically. Um, and so doing stuff like that, I think is helpful. If you haven't tried free, I don't know if this is like the time to try free. COVID was definitely the time to do it. Um, but it's like now, probably if you're in an affected area, like getting freemium as kind of Isaiah was talking about, getting those folks in because eventually they'll be monetized, you know, as we get into better times in the next 18 to 24 months, um, or at least we realize we're in better times, which is probably more accurate. Um, so there's a lot of things that you can do there um, just to kind of boost things. Like this is the time maybe to 
I don't know, start that podcast for your customer base, right? Like stuff like that, um, that I think a lot of people, they always put off. And then now they're probably not going to do it a lot because they're like, oh, I got to worry about this other stuff. But like now's the time when people are like really craving information and craving that type of stuff. Yeah, totally. Well, you guys put out a ton of content. And so a shout out to all the content and podcasts and everything that you put out. Uh, if anyone listening has not seen all of their information, just check it out, uh, profitwell.com. So you guys were acquired recently. Uh, can we talk about that a little bit? So I think whatever it, you want, Chris, you have the friend was, card. So whatever you want. It was announced. I think uh, you put out a, an email and a blog post, a LinkedIn post, and it was over 200 million. Is that right? That's right. We, um, we're a bootstrap company. Um, so we went from bootstrap to selling for over 200 million. Can't be public about the specific number because that's just how this works now that I have a boss and we're part of a heavily venture back company and all that kind of fun stuff. But uh, yeah, it's 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 been interesting. I think uh, it was definitely um, it was definitely definitely a learning experience. I think that's the most generic, but also most like apt thing I can say about it. So so how long ago did you know that you were headed in that direction? You know, like, did you just wake up one day and, and it's, there's a deal and, and you know, it came mm -hmm. together in a few months or how long did it take to evolve? Yeah, we did, we did not want to sell, which from what I'm told is the, like, when the best time to sell is because, you know, you're not <laughs> wanting it, right? Like, a, you know, watch pot doesn't boil or whatever. Um, so we were, you know, as you know, we were in bootstrap for a long time. We were going to raise money for the first time. We like, we were like, all right. At this point in the business, we are now having lots of $10,000 arguments, meaning like we have five initiatives, is not necessarily five, but we have five initiatives, all make perfect sense, all should get funded, but we can't fund them all, right? Mm. And some of them were like 25,000, 100,000, right? Like it's it's more the principle of what I'm saying. And all of a sudden, um, we were like, that doesn't make any sense. Um, we were underpaying ourselves and everyone for a long time like that. You know, it was fine, but it was starting. We knew it was going to start holding us back a lot more than it was. And so all of a sudden it was like, well, we figured so much out about our business and we want, you know, keep growing. Like it's time to raise money, um, which I think is the right time, you know, is I think we should have raised money probably earlier, given our ambitions um, that probably would have prevented this outcome, um, this specific outcome, but maybe would have given us another outcome. But you know, it's a little harder to, to, you know, Monday morning quarterback here, but long story short, um, we were like, cool, we're going to raise money. Um, I knew Christian, the CEO of paddle, um, for a while, went and talked to him and was like, Hey, uh, give me some advice. And he was like, what if we bought you? And I was like, so he just proposed know, like, it casually. Yeah. We were talking. Money? Well, what's funny is I had mentioned it January of last year. So, uh, you know, over 18 months ago as like a joke in a meeting we had just about like content and partnering up and stuff. And then in, in, uh, late October, early November, I think right around there, um, this last year, so almost about a year ago, um, I was, he was like, well, what if we bought you? And I was like, well, I don't know. Uh, you know, cause it's like my baby and we, we didn't want to stop. Right. We weren't looking to sell. And then we got over that within a week and we were, we went, well, if they can meet all these checkboxes, which they won't because this is the under circumstances we'll sell, then we'll sell. Right. Um, and so we had started having the conversations, um, you know, started, you know, kind of thinking through things and started a process as well. So we went out, we reached out to, we didn't hire a banker. Um, we ended up, uh, going to all of our strategic partners, um, and talking to them and we made sure to, uh, uh, we, we didn't really go to PE, um, that, which may have been a mistake, uh, but we kind of didn't, we, we were under the impression that we wanted to kind of partner and keep going. Right. And that's what, that was another way to get resources. Um, so went through that process. Um, I was supposed to take January off. I hadn't had a vacation in five years and I was like, I'm going to take January off. Well, basically the, the first paper we got was like mid December, like an LOI kind of a thing. And then all of a sudden other paper was coming. So it just turned into this like game between mid-December, uh, January 15th is when we signed the LOI officially. Um, we had a number of offers, um, which was exciting um, and very blessed to have. And then January 15th to April 28th was um, diligence and stuff. And then we closed April 28th. So wow. yeah, it was, it was, 
it probably was the best first time to go through this, meaning it was terrible time, like in the markets, Ukraine, all this stuff was happening. Right. And we were like, is this going to all fall apart? But probably the best like first marriage to have here because um, both parties were so earnest to get it done. Like we were, there was no like renegotiation of stuff. There was no squirreliness. There was no like jerks or anything like that. It was, you know, there were 80 some lawyers, which, you know, that's, that's always fun. But long story short, it was, uh, it was, it was, it was not a, I don't know. It, it's the founder rewriting history that's going on in my head where I'm like, it wasn't that bad. Let's do it again. You know, like that's happening at the yeah. time I was like, Oh my God, this sucks. But uh, yeah, so that, that's, that's kind of the overview of the experience. So when people go through an acquisition, you know, it can either be uh, like a PE firm, it can be a strategic buyer and why paddle? Like what was strategic about that? What did you like about that? That felt like you fit together? Yeah. So one, I, I really like Christian. Um, Christian and I think about the world almost like scarily the same way. Like we were on a call this week and I, I made a comment, like we were just talking about a bunch of stuff and I went, yeah, um, I think we should actually think about doing X and Y. And he's like, this is scary. I was like, what do you mean? He's like, I just came from a meeting where I suggested that. And it was something that we had not talked about, right? So like very, like very similar. And it's yeah. not always a good thing in partnerships, but it's a good thing in terms of like the vision that, that that we had and the vision he had was very, oh, like this, this is easy to come together because it's just more gunpowder and more um, you know, wider, you know, playground, right? And so I think that for us it was that it was um the best for our users as well. Like we actually cared about those things. I'm not saying everyone doesn't, but a lot of people don't. And we, it was really good for our customers because we were like, oh, if we had access to this part of like the stack, there's so much more things we could do that we couldn't do unless we, you know, joined forces with a company like this. Um, and then I think it was it was also like role fit. Like I, we're not ready to stop in this space. Um, I think we will be at some point, but we were like, no, we want to kind of keep going. Therefore, yeah. you know, I'm on the board. Faku runs product. Pete runs a major part of the sales team. Um, our marketing, like everyone had a home. They really wanted all of our team. Um, one of the LOIs, they were probably going to let go one of our teams because it just didn't make sense to bring them along, which, you know, would have been fine. They would have been taken care of and everything like that. But it just kind of like all the boxes were checked. And then some of the other offers, like not all the boxes were checked. And so mm -hmm. um, I think we, we definitely got a more lucrative offer. Um or well, time will tell because you know stock components and stuff like that that might be or probably will be more lucrative. But I don't know. It's it's like <laughs> how much is enough, right? Uh, and so uh, this this was a very very good outcome for myself and, and the rest of the team. So that's amazing. Good. So yeah. So when you talk about the boxes that were checked, you know, from the buyer and for the deal to go through, what boxes do you think had to be checked for you in order to be in the position? of being purchased? Like if you had advice to any other founders out there to set themselves up, what do you think the most important factors were? What I can tell you, so one, um, so, so there's a couple of things that are kind of tangential to your question, I think are really important. And then a couple of things that are important, like growth has to be in the right place. Um, you know, one of our products was doubling, another product was growing 70%. Um, we have this free, like free customer base. Like, I think the thing, the way I think about it is you need like, you need clear measurable value, AKA your growth and your revenue and stuff. But then I think you also need, I don't know what the right word for this is, but you need a couple of like other tokens, right? So mm -hmm. for us, it was, we have all this like value, but then on top of it, we have a really good content arm. We have one of the best content arms in our space, right? Um, not just like our competitors, but like our, our whole industry. Like we have really good content for what we have. Um, we have this free customer base, right? Which you can't really like value because there's not revenue or you can, you can like put a lead value on it, I guess, but it's, it's not as measurable, right? So there's like another little token, right? Um, you have like, myself who's in the industry and known in the industry and has lots of context in the industry right these are all these little tokens that i think the reason those are important is because like even a pe firm cares about some of those things because they can put in a model of what they think that that's going to bring to some sort of outcome right yeah. and then when things get when things get hard like there's always stuff that comes up in diligence no matter how good you are those things like kind of pad the calculus a little bit because it's like, well, this number turned out to be a little bit lower than we thought it was, like not because anyone was lying, but because we just, we finally got really updated numbers. 
oh, it's not as good as we thought, but uh, there's more of these things over here. So we think that makes like, everything's fine, right? And I think that helped a lot. Um, I think the other thing is um, being, I, I, I also think like having multiple suitors helped a lot. Um, it, it's a little awkward. It, it was mildly awkward towards the end. Cause it's or like, even when it closed, cause it was like, yeah, we totally dated other people. Like, and you were the first one to talk to us. So we totally did like, but they know it's the game. Right. And so there was, there was definitely a, the ability to put like, like the confidence that I had just to be like, well, we, you know, we got an LOI from someone else. Okay. Like, are you guys going to like crap or get off the pot? You know what I mean? Like that type of a thing. Um, I will say some of the mistakes we made, I do think, I don't know if we would have hired a banker if we did this 10 times over, but like looking at more options, like there's a couple of people that we didn't talk to, like in terms of like deal. And I was like, oh crap, like that was an oversight. Like that was like definitely an oversight, not talking to them, um, which, you know, it, it all worked out. And then I think we had, we have one person who runs all of finance and ops, all of it. So like it, there's definitely, it was not like in tip top shape. And so there was just a lot of like, there was, there was stuff that they asked for like audited financials and we're like, we're not venture back. Like we don't have audited financials. Like we, <laughs> yeah. we're not lying about it, but like we don't have like this, this thing you need. Um, and so like there's stuff like that, that they're like, yeah, it's fine, whatever. But then there was other stuff where they were like, do you have these things? And we're like, oh crap. We had to go like chase down a bunch of people, like not behind their back, but we're just like, we will go chase down, you know, whoever's needed for those things. And so I think, um, the mistake we made is someone gave us really good advice that we were like, yeah, it's really smart. Let's go do that. Where they said, you should tell an operations person to prep the company for sale. The problem is we didn't ask anyone what that specifically meant. So we just kind of logically went off and like, well, we think all the DocuSign should be in the same place. That makes sense. Like we do stuff like that, but what we should have done, and this is what anyone should do, go to a lawyer, your like corporate lawyer, your in-house, if you have one, and just be like, can you send me the last diligence list that you sent someone or your firm sent someone that wow. just went through everything. Because then what we would have done is we would have been like, oh, here's these 300 prompts. A lot of them aren't applicable, but like, oh, we should get that in one place. They're going to ask for this. And then you can create like a nice little folder so that it makes it easier. If you've raised money, you've done a lot of this stuff probably already. Um, but for the rest of us, um, it's just one of those useful things. That's such a good tip. So just ask, ask your lawyer, send me the last diligence list and we have raised money, but I agree. Like putting together the diligence docs for that is that's when you feel like the company's kind of in tip top shape because you've, you've got everything buttoned up and you're ready to go. So yeah. why not operate for that all the time? Great tip. All right. I want to get you out of here on time. Uh, I promised we'd be together for an hour. So I know oh, you've got to get back to your, uh, your beautiful San Juan. It's my sunset. beach, baby. Yeah. yeah, yeah, your yeah. Your beach over there, but thank you so much. This is cool. I appreciate all the pricing tips. Um, if, uh, if anyone joined late, go back to the beginning where he said, September it's over. Like we're all good. I think at least that's how I interpreted it. <laughs> no more. Yeah, bleeding. Don't worry about it. Everything's fine. Yeah. 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 yeah cool. No, we're so, in a pretty good place. I think, uh, there might be some more blips, but yeah, we'll see. It's, it's a lot shallower than I think people are thinking, but who knows? Like there's a lot of things happening in the world that could screw stuff up. China, you know, Ukraine, all kinds of things. So you just gotta be, you gotta keep yourself on your toes. All right. Well, I'll stay on my toes and uh, I look forward to watching your continued progress with Paddle. Uh, thanks again, man. So good to see you. Hey, thanks for listening to Organize Chaos. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe, leave a review or share it with anyone in your network that you think could benefit from this information. For episode show notes, podcast recaps and tons of other small business news and inspiration, check out the manual. That's trainual.com backslash manual.